Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm Tia Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Carl Phillips here. Carl, welcome to WCBN. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And thanks for also picking the songs that we're going to hear today. Um, Do you want to say a few words about the gossip there to lead us in? Um, Well... (laughs) Before we even get to your bio. (laughs) um, Sexy androgyny um, and beautiful rage... Um, all those come together quite magically, I think, in their their music. So, so you could get a side gig writing blurbs for um, <laughs> recording artists. I think now. I, have, I sort of have a dream of writing for Pitchfork.com, but I haven't gotten around to. I think you have to audition and do writing samples and all that. See if you're good enough. Well, if anyone out there is listening from Pitchfork. Uh, <laughs> You can contact Carl Phillips and uh definitely okay <laughs> well, before we go any further, Carl, I'm going to read uh your your bio from your book Quiver of Arrows, selected poems nineteen eighty six to two thousand six um out in two thousand nine with f s g and thanks to Angie Venezia there at f s g for sending this along. Carl Phillips is the author of eight books of poetry, including Riding Westward, The Rest of Love, a finalist for the National Book Award, and The Tether, which won the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. His other books include a translation of Sophocles, Philoctetes, thanks, and Coin of the Realm, essays on the life and art of poetry. Phillips' main honors include the Theodore Retke Foundation Memorial Prize, the Tom Gunn Award for Gay Men Pale male poetry, an award in literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the Library of Congress, and in 2006, the Academy of American Poets Fellowship, given in memory of James Ingram Merrill, for distinguished poetic achievement at mid-career. He teaches at Washington University in St. Louis. Carl, thanks for being here. And that was like some, such a list of awards. I actually was going to comment at some point in the show, like, I feel like you've pretty much won everything to be be one and then I found myself reading them so Mm -hmm. so that's one way of addressing it um is it strange to have like the uh like an award for having being in like a mid-career of poetry like having someone be like this outer eye saying well this 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 point on your trajectory is the mid-career it well it is it's strange only in that I always think life could end at any moment. So, you know, you could be at the, this could be it. And um, in which case, what they deemed mid-career, because say you're in your late 40s, as I was at the time, um, you know, you've got a shot at 80. But then I think, yeah, except what if that doesn't happen? But but it, it's um, just the idea that someone believes that I have a career and that they anticipate more is a great honor. I like I like that. Yeah, it's nothing to sneeze at, yeah. definitely. And maybe it's also because of the number of books at that point too, yeah. in some way, because you've 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 got so many. I mean, yeah. that would be yet another long list mm-hmm. for us to read, which we could. Oh no, <laughs> like, no, no need. Um, Carl, so maybe we'll fill in some of the pieces of your your biography if you wouldn't mind to to uh-huh. kick things off. Um, 
because I thought it was interesting, and correct me if any of this information that I've gleaned from the web um, <laughs> is, is mistaken, but you were born into a military family. Yeah. And so you, when you were young, you were, you were moving around mm-hmm. a great deal yeah. until high school. Yeah, every year. Pretty much until high school, yeah. And did you have a, was it a big family? Like, did you have quite a large um, sort of support system as you all moved around? Or Well, I have two sisters, um, two younger sisters. And, I mean, it seemed like a regular medium family for back then. Um, but I think, you know, there's something destabilizing for certain kinds of people who grow up that way. Um, they always say that being in the military family makes you very social or the opposite. And what I found is whenever we did move, it was sort of in the middle of the school year, and that's such a big deal when you're a little kid, um, having a group, um, entering the school late, not knowing where you fit in. And then by the time you have a best friend or a little cohort, you're leaving again. So I think uh, I probably have fallen more on the skittish side of socializing. Um, On the other hand, sometimes I feel it's a big reason of how I became a writer um, because it's sort of a portable world. Um, um, Writing your own poems, your own stories. I used to make up stories and have a newspaper that I wrote and like copied out from my family members. What age did the newspaper start, Carl? That was when um, we were living in Germany, so I guess I was 10 or 11. um, And it went on for maybe two years long time for a 10 year old yeah that's that's that shows some tenacity at such a young age yeah and were you writing it in english or was it english german or what was your no it was english and there were little columns and i would recruit my sisters and you know i would let one of them be an advice columnist or something then different family members would send in a question um um you know my one of my sisters draws uh used to draw fashions so she sort of introduce this week's fashion um, and she could illustrate yeah. most of it if, if you needed a like a sketch right. or a portrait she yeah. was the one that you could yeah so what was the name of the newspaper you know i knew you were going to oh. ask that and i thought what <laughs> was it um but i and i should remember because i recently unearthed some of them um in my father's attic and or he unearthed them actually and wondered if i wanted them and i thought oh i forgot all about these and i um, hope you said yes and added them to oh, your yeah. poets papers i i right? said yes and then put them in a box if that's what my poet's papers are. <laughs> well, well, okay. Well, because of these awards, at some point, someone's going to say, Carl Phillips, we need your boxes because yeah. we live in, we, we've been living in a pre-digital age. Right. right? That's yeah. right. We actually have a trail of evidence that we existed. And I love so. that. Don't you, that it's an artifact? Yeah. Actually, like yeah. that newspaper, your father found it, and it must have just brought back to him so many yeah. memories. Yeah. I think that's... It's too bad there don't seem to be as many of those anymore. It's so easy to delete things now. Um, but, of course, then there's plenty of stuff you wish you could delete and keep meaning to burn you know, <laughs> before you die. So. Winter's a good time for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, do you think this early, this idea of like interacting with the world so early and, and actually... Um, well, well, reporting on it mm-hmm. in a way, mm-hmm. um, but being a witness to it, too and finding some need to like comment and market is that something that um i don't know did you know when did you start writing poems were you also were there poems in this newspaper no no um i 
I mean, I think mostly that back then, if I link anything much to poetry besides the traveling, it would be um, I was fascinated with codes, and I would invent codes, but I also tried to learn about them. And in fact, when we moved to Germany, one of the requirements of the schools was to learn conversational German. Um, so I think I've always been interested in languages and conveying meaning in different ways, and that is what that's partly what poetry is. Um, but I would say I started writing in high school, and but you know the way so many people do, just sort of, you know, rubbish. But when but, you were you know. sad, or like when you were heartbroken. Oh or? yeah, you know I've never seen any reason to write except when you're heartbroken. But good luck to those who want to go elsewhere, um, and and yeah, because to me it was a place. The page was a place to, and it still is a place to wrestle with difficult things that I don't understand or have difficulty coping with. Um, I have not had difficulty understanding joy, you know, or a good meal. I don't need to write about those things. So, you know, or good sex. I mean, why would you want to analyze it? Bad sex? Yep. Analyze it. Right. Make it better. <laughs> so. And in a and it and maybe it would soften the um, soften it a bit if it were in po- a poem form. Yeah. Because maybe it wouldn't. Because you'd be coming at it at an angle. Mm-hmm. Than, yeah. Um, hmm. And there are also all forms. I mean, poetry, like that newspaper, they're forms of control. Um, you know, you control language and control what's going to be reported on and how it's going to be reported. So, you know, I'm sure if I were the kind to go to a therapist, they would have a field day with. You know, control issues, but so be it. <laughs> so the, <laughs> poetry. Yep. <laughs> and so poetry or, or therapy. Mm-hmm. No. Well, no, actually, I don't mean to make that um, that joke because that's completely, that would be the wrong reading of any of your, your poems, yeah. actually. Yeah, so but it is we true shouldn't that, even make that joke, Carl. But it is true that um, poems are a kind of thrashing out space for ideas and quandary and that doesn't have to be something that only can happen through therapy um it happens through the making of art i mean that's what painting is too and making music um because there's also that moment where when you're making Mm -hmm. you're not there or you're as there as you're you ever are Mm -hmm. yeah when it's all disappeared Mm -hmm. i agree and maybe that's one of the times where you can get some sort of, I don't know, like a, a quietness. So you actually, like, those are the the times where you can maybe understand, which is what, what you were yeah. saying. Yeah, it's like a temporary understanding of what is absolutely unresolvable. Um, you know, the big issues, love, life, death, you know, those things, they don't get resolved. Um, <laughs> those reoccurring. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think... You know, we have various ways of dealing with them, and sometimes it's to be alone with the thoughts about them, and other times it's to go off with our friends and carouse and go dancing. Um, so, but I'd say really all those things are a way of exorcising um, different things within us. And if that's therapy, I mean, so be it. But, but yeah, it's not an easy equation of poetry and therapy. And with with the idea of control and with poems, does that mean because you're choosing a, f- a way of framing mm-hmm. or a moment or so um, 
because it's because do you, I, I don't think I've read a lot of your poems that are in form, so it's mm-hmm. not necessarily right. um, that obvious of a structural thing that you're talking about when you're talking about control. Well, well, but all poems are in form. Um, it's just that I think what you mean is they're not in traditional forms, like a sonnet, you know, or a villanelle. But every um, poem finds its necessary shape on the page, and and so you know, just the decision: are the lines going to be long, or short, or back and forth, and to what degree? Um, so, and, but I think it's also control because it's a form of, uh, you know, you corral information. I mean, you write, but the world doesn't exist that way. I mean, life is happening in every direction right now. But with the poem, for moments, as if you've gotten some frozen. It's like a photograph, you know. It's like a frozen moment, but it's not true, in that sense. It's, it's but it feels comforting to be able to corral this language around something and make it hold as a shape, um, and it, it feels as if you've you've achieved something. But it's not true to experience, um, which is ongoing. Yeah, there's kind of the, deep, wasn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm yeah. not usually like this, so you know, must be a radio thing. It is the magic of radio. Mm-hmm. But I love that that approaching, like you're approaching, what it is that you want or what you're trying to figure or whatever it is. Yeah, but you don't want to get there. I mean, I think it's like a, it's a routine of failure. You know, so it's constantly thinking that you've you've nailed something. Only to learn that, of course, you haven't nailed it. It's like, you know, like I'll have students who will say, well, how can I write about love? Shakespeare already wrote all his sonnets. And I think, and do you think that's the last word on love? You know, and do you feel reading them that now you might you as well no not questions? wake up tomorrow? Exactly. Yeah, it's like, there's more to be said, you know, if only from your own personal perspective. So. And the being mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break, okay. and then we'll come back. And then maybe, would you read a, a, a poem for us, Carl? Sure. We'll get sure. some poems in the air. Um, you've got living writers today on the program. Carl Phillips, um, his book, Quiver of Arrows, Selected Poems, 1986 to 2006. We've also got here with us The Rest of Love and Riding Westward. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Carl Phillips is here. Um, we've got many books on the table, as mentioned before the break, um, but Double Shadow is going to be hitting your local bookstores soon. Um, so we'll, maybe we'll say a few words about that later. Or Carl, do you have any poems from Double Shadow with you? Because maybe we could hear a couple I even. Do. Okay. I do, if, yeah. If that sounds good. And yeah. also, th thanks to Liz Wayson for engineering today. Um, hip, hip, hooray. <laughs> and, um, and Carl, well, maybe before we, we get back to the conversation, would you mind randomly reading us a poem? <laughs> I wouldn't mind. <laughs> um, here's a random poem. It's called Custom. There is a difference it used to make seeing three swans in this versus four in that quadrant of sky. I am not imagining. It was very large as its effects were. Declarations of war, the timing fixed upon for a sea departure, or about love, a sudden decision not to, to pretend instead to a kind of choice. It was dramatic, as it should be. Without drama, what is ritual? I look for omens everywhere because they are everywhere to be found. They come to me like strays, like the damaged, something that could know better and should therefore, but does not. A form of faith, you've said. I call it sacrifice, an instinct for it, or a habit at first that becomes required, the way art can become eventually all we have of what was true. You shouldn't look at me like that like one of those saints on whom the birds once settled freely. There's Paul. Thank you, Carl. You're welcome. Thanks for asking. I love that one. I love that. I, um, there's also a line from your Cloud Country uh -huh. poem. You have so many wonderful lines. And, well, yeah, but, and, and, and here's this, this one where um, you say, moments we are as blameless as we are invincible. Mm -hmm. And I love how that line is also shifting too because when you first hear it it can mean this this one thing but then you realize that it's actually holding these two very different things together mm -hmm. yeah which is kind of beautiful thanks blameless invincible um because because when are when are we either right <laughs> i know <laughs> i know exactly uh-huh just for moments <laughs> do you think omens are poet things that like if you're just like sometimes there's a conversation about um, visions mm -hmm. with poems, and if you can see the world in a way and bring the world like a, a new way of seeing the world or so for a poem. But um, with, do you think omens are like that? That the it's a way of being where you just see signs. You mean as a poet? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. That goofy question there. No, no. I was just trying to sort of get it there uh, <laughs> I think I think uh, well I mean I don't think that that the scene of omens is limited to poets but I sometimes think that poets have a, some poets have a slight curse where we can't really seem to look at anything without immediately thinking what else does it mean and then we have to remind ourselves, oh, it's just a tree in the wind blowing. It's not about mortality, you know. But for a moment, it can seem, you know, or... Um, Especially if the light... Yes, <laughs> I know. Um, or, you know, a deer comes out of the woods. Oh, what, what's a, this, what is it a sign of? But then that's no worse 
or different maybe than lots of, at least from what I understand, of older religious traditions where, you know, the eagle descends and it's Zeus, you know, um, from on high or his messenger. Um, I think we've always, I think humans have a long history of wanting to believe that the natural world wants to give us signs by which to know that we're doing the right thing. But I don't think in reality that's the case. But we just cling to the idea that that's why. I, I had a friend a couple of years ago whose mother had died. Um, and um, shortly after, like, several types of birds all landed on the lawn. And he was convinced it was his mother uh, sending a sign that she was okay. And then they all lifted off. And, you know, I felt bad saying, oh, come on. That's, Did that's, you say, oh, <laughs> well, I didn't maybe put it that way. I guess <laughs> I just said, well, you know, it could be, but, you know, probably they just came it's the way also flock lands. migrating and... <laughs> season for them. I know, I know. Oh. I thought, well, but then, but then I thought, but we want to believe that some people want to believe that. Um, so it's not just poetry. And, you know, I think it might, as you were saying, this, Carl, I, I started to think maybe it's because of this desire to want to be as human beings, like part, a part mm -hmm. of. So, th what's here? Because I think, like, there's this sense of being this cellular structure that you're kind of walking around and isolated in some ways, yeah. as because we have our failures of connection mm -hmm. all the time. And so, trying to connect to the natural world, world seems like maybe. Yeah, it's a kind of finding of company, maybe. I mean, like the transcendentalists, I think it seems, as I understand it, it seems kind of clear why they would, I mean, after coming to a largely unsettled country in terms of, I mean, it hadn't been roads and highways, you know. I mean, I can see how it must have been overwhelming. I mean, we get nervous if we're in the middle of a wood, but for <laughs> there to be a whole country of woods or something. Um, and it must have been quite comforting for people to think oh well, we're not alone we're we're accompanied by god who's giving us his signs throughout the landscape we have only to work hard at interpreting them and finding them you know and um i can see where that kind of thinking comes from because otherwise what's the alternative except to have this sort of existential you know fear that we're totally alone um and no one cares actually and there is no moral valence to anything and in fact you can do anything I mean I do have to say that's why I'm not surprised at the most horrific things that happen when people act as if how could this be or how could this this shooting or you know this someone drowns her children and I think it can easily be once you move outside the world that is actually artificial the world of moral stability um, that's just something we've imposed on ourselves as if we're not animals like anything else. Um, so when someone breaks the so-called accepted code, suddenly, you know, we're, we're shocked. That how could that be? It, it rattles everybody because then you see someone else being in that way and some part of us realizes, well, then if it could happen to them, what's to stop us from becoming unhinged? I fear I've gone into the depths again. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> Pull me back. As I'm just nodding. <laughs> and yes, completely on your side here with us. Yeah. Well, and that's that's also part of 
the work that it's, I mean, if, if poem, whatever, I was just going to say the work that poetry does. And then I wanted to like, it, I don't know. That's, I hate phrases like that. Well, but it's, it's at least what some poetry can do if it wants to. I'm, I mean, I know I'm interested in um, transgression and, and what's meant by transgression and who's to say what transgression is. Um, which isn't to say I'm necessarily that kind of person, but I'm just interested in, I, I, I believe poetry has many responsibilities, but one of the responsibilities is, is to speak against the grain and to, mm-hmm. and to trouble us into constantly having to re-examine what we take for granted because things change and, and we can be wrong and poetry can, um, can force us sometimes painfully to look in other directions that might be useful, even though we might not think so at the time. So, and so, and I, and it, that seems completely the reason why people look to poems when something happens that they can't understand or with tragedy. Like I can see that connection. Sometimes, although a lot of people I think look to look to poetry for consolation and I think that that's fair enough to look for it for mm-hmm. consolation, but but um, sometimes I think it's important for poetry to disturb us. Yes, and yeah. to sort of remind us, you know what? I mean, I like a poem that says, "I'm not going to console you for your loss. I'm going to let you know that loss happens, and you better get used to it." That's what I was um, meaning yeah. more than the other. Yeah, but I yes. But I find that people do get upset sometimes if you write about things that maybe are true, but they kind of think, well, why do you want to say that? The world's harsh enough. Why do you want to? And I think, well, because every once in a while, it's good to question reality. And, um, you know, it's not all about the oblivion of good sitcoms or bad ones. Um, and, you know, drinking your beer, even though that those are pleasures too. And sometimes it's important to look away from the complexities of life. But either side all the time is, I think, not good. And you would be right, Carl Phillips. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and this is your hour. You're going to be right the whole time, uh-huh. I'm guessing. <laughs> uh-huh. And so, um, did we say... So you're working at the uh, the University of Washington in St. Louis. Well, yeah, Washington University. Or Washington, I'm sorry. That's yeah. okay. University of Washington is in Washington it is. State. It is. But it's confusing because then there's George Washington. Oh. You know, um, who knows what all. There are like three or four that all get smashed together but and you've been there for, for how long have you been there years. to my surprise yeah is that, is that so is that the longest you've lived in a place yes it is and that's partly i think why i'm there um i have long had this need for a sense of home and i've been there long enough it became home and i really i still think of myself as being from massachusetts and i lived there from high school through college and actually the so I've lived in Massachusetts longer still than I've lived in Missouri, but it's getting close that Missouri will win over. But I think that, um, you know, I, I care about things like it was important to live in a house and to stay in one place. And I happen to like St. Louis itself and the students and the school. Um, so yeah, but it wasn't the plan when I first got the job. It was a temporary three-year visiting job, so. And you never know, do you? No, 
Well, maybe we can talk a little bit about like what, why was it important to have a place? Mm. Well, I think for, because of that military moving around a lot. Um, was it important for you and your core or for what you perceived in the work or is it in, it's oh, inseparable? No, just me. Yeah, just me. I, I, uh, and maybe because there's enough instability in, in writing for me, um, yeah, well, what you're trying to do in your writing. Yeah, yeah. I feel as if, yeah, th then somewhere you have to have something where you can, you know, that and cooking are my touchstones of stability, you know, being um, in a house and taking care of it and then cooking things that don't require um, the same part of your brain that's investigating moral valence, you know. <laughs> Sometimes it can be refreshing to whip up a good pasta sauce. Exactly. I think I did it. Uh, yeah, and the yeah. sautéing of the garlic. Yeah, all of it. And the pleasure you see as people share it with you. Mm. And, you know, it's it's nice to know that there are still some simple ways to bring happiness to people. And to be human. Yeah. We're going to take a short break. Okay. You're listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, Carl Phillips. Uh, we'll be right back. I 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. And you're lucky because today on Living Writers, Carl Phillips is here in the studio at WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, Carl, thanks again for being here. Thank you for having me. And, um, well, I was thinking that maybe we could we could actually hear another poem. Oh sure. And and do you is it is it easy to reach the ones from the the new book that will be coming out in a couple of months Double yeah. Shadow with FS and G? Sure. Um, he said then he proceeded to make it not be easy. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I can talk I can talk while while you're while you're looking there cuz um, Oh, they're right here. That's fine. They're okay. You've got I love the sheaf. Yeah. There's nothing to re- replace <laughs> the sheaf. <laughs> yes. So, okay. It's called Civilization. Nice, simple name. Yeah, exactly. Does, does that does that harken back to your your study of the a- ancient Greek and teaching Latin for eight years, or? No, I don't think. No, I don't think there's anything like that. Okay. But, yeah, Civilization. There's an art to everything. How the rain means April and an ongoingness like that of song until at last it ends. A centuries-old set of silver handbells that once an altar boy swung processing. You're the same wilderness you've always been, slashing through briars, the bracken of your invasive self. So he said, in a dream. But the rest of it, all the rest, was waking more often than not to the next extravagance. Two Blackamoor statues, each mirroring the other, each hoisting forever upward his burden of hand-painted, carved-by-hand peacock feathers. Don't you know it? Don't you know I love you? He said. He was shaking. He said, I love you. There's an art to everything. What I've done with this life what I'd meant not to do, or would have meant maybe, had I understood, though I have no regrets. Not the broken but still flowering dogwood, not the honey locust either, not even the ghost walnut with its non-branches whose every shadow is memory, memory. As he said to me once, that's all garbage down the river now, turning but as the utterly lost because addicted do resigned all over again. It only looked, it, it must only look like leaving. There's an art to everything, even turning away, how eventually even hunger can become a space to live in, how they made out of shamelessness something beautiful for as long as they could. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. Light. Yes, <laughs> yeah. No, thank you for reading that. And sure. That, and, it's a pleasure. Um, a, a colleague of ours died last week, Matt Kelly, unexpectedly. Mm. And oh. so there's like a, I don't know, this this beautiful quality that, that I just was feeling about, like the things like of, of the leaving. Mm-hmm. But it's, I don't know, because if we're, yeah. Anyway, I, maybe not, I was going to say if we ever exist at all, like we probably keep, there's something that keeps existing, mm-hmm. even if the physical leaves but um well memory if nothing else so we linger as memory and was that was it did you say ghost walnut Mm -hmm. and and was that is it a really oddly shaped tree where it doesn't have because when you i loved that 
part of your poem. No, you know what it is? Um, there was a walnut tree in my backyard in St. Louis, and we had to take it down and uh, some years ago, and which was very painful for me to do. But was it what, a, an old, huge yeah, tree? Yeah, a giant black walnut tree. And um, But what I find is every once in a while, for a moment I think it's there. And, and Your then, eye sees it there again, Well, I or? just think, where's, I just think, oh, wait, the walnut tree. Um, and I think the walnut tree's been gone for years. But it's, um, So I thought, it's like a ghost walnut. And the branches, for branches, it's just memory, memory. And as soon as I thought that, I thought, I think that could be in a poem. So I had to write it down. That's how I, that's how it works for me. I'm just probably picking up dog ah! or raking. And then I look around, where's that damn walnut tree? And... <laughs> Oh, can we use words like that in the air? Oh, right. Whoops. <laughs> we talk- <laughs> okay, well, bleep me or something. Right. And now everyone will be like, what <laughs> word did he use? Because Liz will bleep it. <laughs> no, within context, it'll be totally, we'll, we'll all yeah, know. those words are fine. No. Yeah. Well, maybe they're not. I guess there's, what's it? FFC or FC? Well, oh, that's exactly it. Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't care around yeah. these parts, but, but... Uh, anyway, yes, but we do care because the FCC. Yes, I understand. They're, they're, the law. They are watching. They are listening. <laughs> um, but but what you were saying was actually really beautiful. Like the part of your process mm-hmm. is that you're 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 kind of doing the daily or sure. or meandering, and then these ideas come, and you actually do. You go and start writing. And for, was this that literally the genesis of the poem, Carl, or was it an image that you had in a notebook, and you knew this was, or did it just all? Did it grow, the poem grow around it? Well, I just collect, I collect images, but um, some of this. I mean, I'd say this poem came out of uh, certain objects I saw at a friend's house. Um, he has a set of old silver handbells. Um, and he was he was an altar boy. Yes, and. Um, and he also has he collects gigantic Blackamoor statues that have peacock feathers they uphold so I wanted to sort of stitch these into a poem sometime and, but also I was interested in writing about relationships that are doomed to fail um, and how if, if the case is that you're going to end up leaving somebody that maybe there's an art to it is there a right way to do it I don't know and um, um, and just sort of all, then it comes together one day, you think, I think if I sat down for a few hours and nobody bothered me, I might be able to come up with something. And so that's, that's your, that's your method. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my ideas I get while walking my dogs and I don't bring anything to write with. Um, but I'm just, just images or words, a single word will come up and I'll think I want that word to be in a poem sometime, but I don't know what the poem's going to be. Um, then every, I don't know, couple of weeks, I'll sit down with just these little scraps of paper and think, I wonder how these would come together if I looked at them now. I've always wondered, well, what would have happened had I waited another week or did it previous month? Um, but you can never know. Then you've done it. So. And so when you get back from the walks, then you have, you're kind of jotting it down yeah. wherever. And yeah. then they're I just... just go to the recycling bin. I pull out <laughs> paper and jot it down and then carried upstairs eventually and um but the question is always like when is the moment going to have or happen when you could when you feel as if 
these things could begin to constellate into something that resonates with meaning. Because otherwise, they're just little scraps, and you just write them down. That's not a poem. So, for, for me, it isn't. So, no, but it's yeah. so. But but it sounds like you're making the moment by just giving the time to it when you're. But you've got you've got the subconscious yeah. that's been doing that work. That's right. for a while. That's right, and so it's not as magical as it may sound. It, it can seem magical, and then I'll think, but I've been living with these thoughts and bits of language for a month and um, so it makes sense that your mind is sort of shaping them into something the way that as I understand it dreams take shape around bits and pieces that have entered your mind in ways you don't know so how often does it happen that you you don't write these either the words or the images down because you think they're so vivid that they're you can't there would be with you forever, mm-hmm. but then they're not. That, well, it happens more often than I'd like it to. And the, usually when that happens, though, it's, well, it's, it's, because, <laughs> it's because it's an image that has come to me very late at night, and I'm on the sofa enjoying some wine, and then I fall asleep on the sofa, and in the morning I think, I'll have a vague awareness. I think I had a brilliant idea. And I panic. I think, maybe I wrote it down. I don't remember I wrote it down. I look for all these things, and there's nothing. I I just think, okay, if it was meant to return, it will. But it never does. Too bad. That's why you... That's why I tell my students, you should always carry a notepad and a pen with you and write things down. And, but yet uh, you and your dog walk. I know. I know. And I think, well, if it's good enough, it'll still be with me. It's the things we tell ourselves. What kind of dogs do you have? I have uh, two. One is a German Shepherd lab mix, and one is an Australian cattle dog. They're both from shelters, so there's some murkiness about what they are, but that's what I was told. Oh, I I have a border collie. Oh, well, then you know. To understand the herding herding thing, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Carl just grimaced. Yeah. I, I feel bad. I mean, actually, now the dog is old. And it's... The cattle dog? Yes. It's more than the German is, um, Becoming paralyzed. And and so it's weird how then you sort of long for, oh, I remember when he'd never stopped moving and was such a pain in the neck. But um, and now, you know, now that he's not moving because he can't, I think, oh, it's actually too bad i missed the friskiness yeah there's a reason yeah. the reason he was mm-hmm. he's there um let's take a short break okay. and then we'll come back uh today on living writers carl phillips we'll be back Music's louder 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Carl Phillips. His book, Double Shadow, will be out with FS&G in a couple of months. So, and we just got to hear a poem from there. But now, Carl, um, will you read us another? Sure. And, and it, it looks like you've got the selected. Yeah, yeah, I thought it could be interesting to actually read the first poem in my first book. Um, so, sort of, since kind of a time warp <laughs> I think all the words pass muster with the government I'm not sure this, this is <laughs> there's one that I don't know <clears throat> okay it's called X several hours past that of knife and fork laid across one another to say done X is still for the loose stitch of beginners the newlywed grinding next door that says no one but you the pucker of lips only not yet the wounds those lips may be drawn to. X, as in variable, anyone's body, any set of conditions, your body scaling whatever fence of chain metal X's desire throws up, what your spread-eagled limbs suggest falling and now, after. X, not just for where in my life you've landed, but here too, where your ass begins its half-shy, half-weary dividing, where I sometimes lay my head like a flower and think I mean something by it. X is all I keep meaning to cross out. Thank you, Carl. And now is that poem, does that bring you back to that moment in time, like you said, your first book mm -hmm. when it was coming? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting um, to read something like that and remember where you were when you wrote it um, and why you wrote it um, but also what's interesting to me is how it never for a moment seemed controversial to me to have a description of an ass um, let alone <laughs> following it up with laying your head on the person's ass like a flower that um, was a and, that was a great moment you know I just thought it was like doesn't everyone think this way and, and yet I realized it was that kind of thing that from the start, I think, made people wonder what kind of poet is this? Um, you know, I never thought of myself as controversial, but I think, especially in the beginning, people did see that as kind of, this is strange. Um, was that, what was that like for you? Was that something that was actually freeing in a way like, yeah, then, if that's, if you think how I, how I see is strange, that, well, there you go, I'm going to I just thought it was, see an, even more. I thought it was amusing because, um, because it wasn't an act um yeah and and now maybe this is wrong to compare it to something that is partly a performance but you know it was in the same kind of years when madonna was just starting um off with like a virgin and all of that and i remember back then everyone seemed to think well what's wrong with this woman she's wearing a wedding dress she's rolling around very sexually talking about being a virgin and she's wearing the cross around her neck and now this to me seemed absolutely perfect and not new um i mean the ancient greeks had the whole thing with you know the civilized apollo side of us the wild dionysus side of us and so there's there's always been that that, that troubling area where the two come together and i thought i think madonna still brings those things together um you know or her, her ad I remember her famous ad, I think it was for Pepsi, um, 
where it was yanked off after the first night when it debuted because it was the one where, you know, she is kissing a black Christ figure and then crosses are burning on, um, you know, on a lawn while she's running around, I think, in a blood red negligee. And, you know... Um, I can't believe I missed that it was one, though, no It was for the song um, Like a Prayer. Right, um, okay. But it started off as a commercial she had been commissioned to do. And, and of course, you know, the company immediately yanked it. Thought, this can't <laughs> represent our cola. But I, I thought, it's, but it's true. And it had history, the burning crosses, the sex. It had interracial sex and interracial sex with someone who's a saint or Christ figure. So the whole human Christ connection. Yeah, suddenly prayer became... Um, a form of sex and vice versa, which I've always thought happens to be so in some ways. In a way, you're like a poet prophet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, you know. It's always been so. Speaking. <laughs> I know. Well, it's easy to say in a room with one person. <laughs> Endless. That's right. Yes. And so, and the magic of radio. <laughs> yeah, but see, they're not here saying things, things back like, what? They're at home thinking, why does he think he's got the angle on everything? Well, because this is your hour. Yeah, well, no. You know? <laughs> and so you should. Well, I think it's interesting that you, you say prayer because um, because of your the, your your lyric voice and 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 when you're when someone's reading the poems um as well as then being lucky enough to hear you say them um there is that quality of prayer and that's what i think well in 1998 so i won't take credit for <laughs> saying this for the first time but the national book award citation um said passionate and lyrical poems read like prayers mhm and you're like, I know, I've heard that no, no. since 98. <laughs> no, I, no, I I do think that. It's just interesting. But that's was, a big weight, too, I think, uh, yeah. to have. Yeah, it's interesting because someone recently asked me, they wanted me to be on a panel uh, that was about, uh, oh, relationships with poetry, the, uh, poetry that engages with Christ and Christian um, ideas. And I said that I didn't understand why they would even ask me to do that, and that I'm not like that, not that there's anything wrong with it. And um, and they seem absolutely persuaded. They said, well, we thought you were a very devout Catholic, and, um, you know, and that you we read this in the poems. And I've never... I'm a complete heathen. I mean, as religious as it gets is I happen to live a few doors down from the Basilica in St. Louis, the head of the archdiocese. So I see nuns and priests all day walking back and forth. Promenading. Um, yeah. As and, I do. And the bells ring. Um, oh, that's beautiful. Every hour and the canonical hours. and Yeah. But, but within the shadow of all that, I just leave my little heathen life. Double shadow. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Or if that's where it came from, huh? But the double, mm -hmm. the double life. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I wonder why you have to even feel that way because you're like we were talking about earlier. This idea of trying to approach what the big things are, whether mm -hmm. it's love or loss or mm -hmm. 
or faith or right. dancing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's like, uh, so I wonder why you even have to feel that way. What way? That that there's this doubleness that, I don't know, at least how you were framing it was, I mean, I, I think it, maybe it's something to be proud of or, to, or, or I. Well, because there is doubleness. I mean, it's even more than doubleness. I mean, I feel like there's so many uh, facets of what it is to be alive. Um, you know, the double shadow that I refer to in um, the forthcoming book is the double shadow of uh, risk and faint-heartedness. Because I feel as if either one, there's a poem that includes those in it, and at the end it talks about um, each one is a form of disembodiment without the other. Because you can't live a life of constant risk. Um, I mean, first of all, if that's all you did, it's not a risk anymore. Um, but also to be so faint-hearted that you never take a chance um, wouldn't be good either. So I feel as if there is this double shadow but it's about everything. Um, you know, you spoke about the the loss of one of your colleagues a week ago, but in some ways that loss um, returns a person to you know, we start to understand how valuable they were in a different way. Yes. And, you know, same with, we wouldn't appreciate joy if we didn't have sorrow um, from which to long for joy. So everything's a double shadow, it seems to me. And we, Could, you need both. Because you, had, you um, <clears throat> had mentioned that with how can you know good if you don't, if you want you to know good, you would have to know evil. Yeah. So a thinking, feeling person mm-hmm. in some ways. But then I thought it was interesting because... You said, but to seek evil now, it's questionable. Like, it seems like a different, because, I don't know, help me out here, Carl. Because <laughs> I think mm. you were saying it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world that people recognized having to, to, to look well, into those dichotomies. Right, Whereas right. Whereas now, if you're like, well, I'm going to have some coke, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that, you know, because then you're like, well, then you can't be a senator. Mm-hmm. Or well, because no right. one in the Senate has ever tried drugs, or that's right. Um, yeah, this idea that it's all one way, um, and that human experience is not multidimensional, just seems not true. And but we elevate figures into these ideals of perfection. Then we're shocked. I mean, I don't think there's anything shocking. For example, that someone like a Tiger Woods might be capable of having affairs or, you know, arguing with his wife. I mean, come on. But suddenly, because everyone had sainted him, it's like, how can this happen? Um, And, yeah, it's... um, And similarly, you know, um, it might be hard to do, but even to look at very hard-hearted criminals, um, to forget that they also might actually have loved somebody... Um, in very real ways. Um, I mean, that is possible. And, um, or to have felt fear and, and innocence and joy. Um, and who knows how it then somehow twists into something else. But, but to act as if they can only be clear-cut one way seems a little um, just narrow thinking. Yeah, not, not very... It was intelligent in some ways yeah. or, or what, like what we hope for the mm-hmm. human condition, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
and maybe I, I, I hope it's not too negative, but it seems like, um, there's some, something in our culture right now that makes us feel like we're in a little speed car more towards that, making things fall into these neat categories where I would think that it would be the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. We should be I think it's more it. a problem in this country than others, but I, that would be a whole other show. That'll be our next <laughs> hour, Carl. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just, I don't know. There's something very, um, peculiarly American about that way of thinking, it seems to me. But it, but it used to be that what was peculiarly American was the other, like at least part of our, I don't know, at some point. Well, no, because it's never really been true, but so part of our, like the myth mm-hmm. or what other countries would, when you see the best, and now, yeah, what are we talking? Yeah. <laughs> They're like, people are listening going, what about the poems? <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> We're taking the fight to yeah. them. <laughs> exactly. Carl, thanks so much for being on the program Thank you. Today. Thanks for having me. It's uh, a pleasure. Come back anytime. Okay. Okay? Um, maybe yeah, maybe if you're not in this neck of the woods, um, when Double Shadow comes out, maybe maybe call so we could have yeah, a, technology. Few, a few words. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we can do it. Um, even if we're poets, <laughs> we can use technology. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks again to Liz for engineering. Um, And many, many thanks to Carl Phillips for being here on Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, the 9th of March, 2011. In San Francisco, I'm Danny Wood. Coming up on the newscast. In Washington, lawmakers attempt to break gridlock as another government shutdown looms. We'll take a look at efforts to combat anti-Muslim sentiment ahead of controversial hearings by Congress member Peter King. And we go to Thailand, where advocates want to push for better water management to help deal with the country's drought. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. Today in Illinois, an announcement from Governor Pat Quinn. It is impossible to create a perfect system, one that... free of all mistakes. 
free of all discrimination with respect to race or economic circumstance or geography, to have a consistent, perfect death penalty system, I have concluded.